So welcome to this podcast. This is Paul Donovan. And today I have a very, very special guest. Now, why do I say Dr. Mark Cross is so special? And the reason I say that is because uh, earlier this year, I had the pleasure of reading his book. Now, I'm going to get to his book in just a moment, but it really touched me. I mean, it really touched me. It transformed how I was thinking about myself in this, this really critical area of anxiety. And it's allowed me to sit with this very present energy that I've had for many years in my life called anxiety in a much, much more comfortable way. So today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Mark Cross, psychiatrist. And now Mark came from um, South Africa in 2005, and he had various positions here in psychiatry. Um, he, I'm just going to give you a potted history. There's so much Mark has done. He runs a private practice, Northside um, MacArthur Clinic in Campbelltown and in Cremorne. He is the senior lecturer at, um, in psychiatry at the University of New South Wales. He's been awarded teaching awards for his work there. You may know of Mark actually from his work in Changing Minds, the ABC TV series, which was very, very well received. And he was the leading psychiatrist in that work. And so um, he's been given the New South Wales Premier Award for Service to Public Health in 2015. But as I mentioned a few minutes ago, last year he published a fascinating book and it's on anxiety. And so Mark's practice is very widespread. He deals with, I've had, I had read through the number of people and concerns that he deals with. It's extremely wide. He's got a, a very large breadth of experience dealing with people clinically. And, um, and then he had the wisdom and the, the, the fortitude to go ahead and put it all, put a lot of it in a book. So here he is today. And um, I'm going to say a couple of things, first of all, in a book, but Hey, thank you for being with us today, Mark. I just, it's really good to be with you. Thanks. Although that did make me squirm a bit because, you know, I do have imposter syndrome. And yeah. they're going, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. There's nothing like getting someone to read out your achievements to create that, uh, you know, uh, little, little nasty piece. And in fact, that just, here's the first thing I wanted to do, Mark. Um, I, I'm going to read you just to give you even a bigger sense of imposter syndrome, although this is a little different. This is the second chat, the second paragraph of your book, Mark. And maybe this is what got me so interested. I'm going to read it. It's your introduction. It's just a couple of sentences. It's in your introduction, but this is from his book, page one. For me, anxiety is the red eyed Yeti sitting on the edge of my bed or hovering above me as I, panic-stricken, shift from sleep to full wakefulness in the dead of night, a brute whose burning gaze bores into my inner being. I feel it during bad times, waiting to burst through like a beast from a horror novella. At other times, it seems less angry, appearing to want to hold me and be understood. I've experienced these night terrors since, I, since the age of four, and during stressful times, they become more frequent. And that is on the first page, Mark. And this book is no ordinary book by a psychiatrist writing about a malady. Mark has written about his own life dealing with anxiety. And that is what stopped me dead in my tracks. I wonder whether you could just say a little bit about what it was like to write about that, Mark. Yeah, it was hard because, of course, the whole book was muted by my then publisher, 
after Changing Minds came out and I wrote a book uh, following that TV series. And she went, oh, you you have anxiety because obviously I'll talk about it. And mm. why don't you write a book on it? And then, of course, I went into panic mode. Mm. And it's quite, it's quite difficult talking about that as a doctor. And I know you're talking about the corporate world. Mm. You know, in terms of... I know being coming out as 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 something with something that's still a weakness in one level, although mm. I call people not to see it as such. Uh, I still find it hard to talk about. And it was really hard to write about. So hard, in fact, that they kept on having to shiver me along to finish the book, <laughs> which yes. actually worked to the best uh end game, as it were, because it was finally ready just as just as Corona hit our shores. So it was a good time to bring a book out. (laughs) But it was supposed to be published about a year and a half before. Oh, wow. I see. Yes. Well, it's, it's, you have dug deep in this. I mean, you, you have really dug deep. I, I, I noticed at one point you list the things which you notice that you do. Here it is. You stutter or spoonerize, you sigh, you talk too fast, you overthink, you ruminate, and sometimes have angry outbursts. And uh, and I just want to say, you know, brilliant, <laughs> brilliant work to write that because you dig, did dig deep. And if we should not be thinking of it as, as a weakness, how should we be thinking of it? What positioning should we have about it? It's inter- that's an interesting question because, of course, it's also so much part of me. So... The two things that come to mind there is when when I was writing about it, also people go, well, doesn't everyone get anxious? So it's actually quite a difficult thing to typify or classify Mm. because, indeed, we all have an anxiety response but mainly to an event. So, of course, we get anxious when we've got to present something or before an exam. That's more a stress response Mm. that people do get confused with anxiety, but it's similar. You know, the body, Mm. the adrenaline ramps up and you, you know, getting ready, you're shaking, you're thinking, overthinking, can't sleep, really going into performance drive. The problem with anxiety as a disorder or, you know, as a clinical condition Mm. is you have those responses when there are no external threats. And when you're just sitting, having a nice conversation with your neighbor, for instance, sipping a lemonade, you know, that's that's part of it. Mm-hmm. But how should we see this? Well, I, I've grappled with this question a lot. I, I, As I say to my patients, come on, be kind to yourself, self-compassion, self-kindness, and this is you. It's part of you. It doesn't mean it's the whole of you. You are somebody with anxiety and whether you, you know, absolutely see yourself getting better now or in the future, what's a journey, despite having what is considered a mental health condition, you are the person who can make the most out of your life. And in fact, it needn't detract from you, you know, actually having a successful life. Mm. We can come back to what's successful, all that sort of stuff in, sure. in the corporate way. But that's how I like to think about this because I'm often asked, and you mentioned now, I've had the Yeti since I was four, so I have night terrors, and that was an externalization of my night terror, Yeti with red eyes. So mm. I talk about my anxiety in that way. Since the age of four, I've had anxiety, when I, and especially when I look back on things. And so part of it 
is, well, it's part of me, right? So I'm now 56 this year. I'm 55 currently. So for over 50 years, I've been dealing with this. And yes, I've overcompensated and I've done well in my career and my life. It's always an overcompensation, right? Yes. Because what people don't understand too, and sorry if I'm going all over the place, but no, you know, good. we perform, we are able to perform, but that performance exhausts us. And then our partners and our carers, and our, they're the ones who see the flakiness and have to deal with all the tears and tantrums, I, I like to call it at times, right? Mm. Um, and, and John, my husband, I mean, he's dealt with this for 20 years now, mm. and it confuses the hell out of him at times mm. because I'll be this complete mess even before something like this, like a podcast, I'll be screaming, running around, going, oh, my God, why am I doing these things? Not this, not today, by the way. It was actually quite a good day. Where's <laughs> everything? And then people are looking at me, and then I sit down, and I'm nice and calm. And then they go, what the hell? Who, who's that person? Mm. I can switch, you know, it's, it, it mm. takes practice, doesn't it? So yes. those are all the things going through my mind now. It's not mm. a weakness, but, oh, my God, sometimes I could just live without it. But yeah. that's for sure. But mm. it's that sense of self-awareness, but also self-kindness because self-stigma is awful. And, you know, it's taken me a long time to get to a place where I don't excoriate myself inwardly and mm. constantly. But even now after this, I will, I'll think, oh, my God, why, you know, I was asked this, why did I go here? I mean, it's a kind of, even now I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going on too much. And why are we, what, you know, why didn't I just, I'll keep quiet now. But, you know, it's, it's, it's yes. that, yes. that constant sort of stream in the head. It's like the hamster wheel that I talk about. And, mm. you know, you've got to just learn how to get off it at times. Mm. Well, I, even I found what you've just said to be so helpful because, um, well, in fact, after reading your book, I want to let you know that I, I don't know what you think about self-diagnosis, but I certainly tick the box on a generalized anxiety disorder. And um, I had reason to be interviewed for a podcast myself a couple of months ago, and it was partly because of uh, the book you'd written um, that I was able to talk about my anxiety in that podcast. And um, it was a it was a podcast called Getting to the Heart of Business run by the online company. And and it was because of your book that I spoke honestly about the fact that I have managed this, this difficult tendency for a long, since I was a little kid. And, um, and I don't know, mine's not quite a Yeti. I'm not quite sure what it is. I think it's really nice to have something that you would describe it like that, but it, it is for my, my wife cannot understand how I might wake up and have a, a sense of dread. Uh, and, and I'm not even sure myself why I would have a sense of dread. Um, but there is a sense of dread that's operating within me. And um, and I think I've overcompensated, perhaps like you. I've worked very hard in my career. I've spent, I don't know, I think I added up 14 years doing part-time study after graduating, <laughs> you know, with um, from the undergraduate degree, finishing a doctorate. And it was, I just think, in many ways, it was the other side of the anxiety. I didn't really want to go into a consulting world any longer without having that behind me to finish a doctorate. But I honestly think it was partly driven by anxiety. You know. Well, a couple of things there, and thank you for being that's so eloquent, and thank you for being so amazing about the book. But 
at the end of the day, I wrote that book for exactly what you're just describing, mm. people to understand what anxiety is, but also to see a self-awareness. So self-diagnosis on one level, but is maybe not great if you if you then go down your own little rabbit hole yeah. uh, and then not know where to get help or whatever. But actually it's a self-awareness, isn't it? You go, wow. I think I fit this picture and often with us men, right, we take a longer time mm. to acknowledge things than women do, yeah. uh, certainly in terms of health and, and getting help. So I think that's a very helpful thing, but it also gives it a name. And, and yes, yeah, so I've got my Yeti because I, and by the way, I saw that bloody thing next to me at the age of four, the mm. dog over my legs when my grandmother was visiting. So I remember exactly when, so I can anthropomorphize or whatever it, but I'm sure you can have a demon or whatever. Yeah. But it's that dread in the morning that you don't understand either. And often with anxiety, we run away from it or we have avoidance techniques and, and that operates negatively for many years often mm. before we finally come and go, okay, now I need to look at some positive ways of dealing with this and also harnessing it. Because let's face it, we are where we are because of our anxiety or not only despite our anxiety, there, there has to be some evolutionary positivity about having all this, right? Mm. This has enabled the human race, unfortunately to lay waste to the planet, but we won't go there right now, <laughs> but to be the predominant dominant species, it has helped us survive and it's that survival instinct that kicks in sometimes we need it mm. and it pushes us forward unfortunately it also then can get to panic and then once you reach panic your performance goes way down mm. uh, so it's getting those that balance right in a way mm. You've said in your book that anxiety is now one of the primary causes of mental health related absences from work Mm. And um, that's a, an extraordinary statement that you've I've taken from your book. And, and as you probably know, Hugh Mackay, the Australian sociologist, describes anxiety in his more recent book as being at epidemic levels. So there's something happening in our society where our society is becoming a little more unfamiliar and more volatile than what it might have been 20 years ago. And we are not quite, as it were, appear to be keeping up with the level of change, you know, in leadership, um, in leadership literature, we call it as VUCA, V-U-C-A, volatile, un volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And, and so that's what's in, on the increase. And leadership talks about, well, we need to be able to lead in VUCA, but what they don't generally acknowledge is leadership in VUCA times has got a lot to do with whether you can manage your anxiety in volatility and in uncertainty. And, um, and, and I'm, yeah, I'm wondering what kind of thoughts you have when I say that. Well, first of all, those stats, by the way, the 11 to 14% in Australia, yep. you add in the depression and anxiety. So that was, you know, recorded separately. These are the mental health surveys. Yep. It goes up to nearly 16%. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, if you look at what they measure, they don't measure phobias, specific phobias. And um, so it's even higher. And, of course, we're having this conversation, hopefully almost post-pandemic, but we're not there yet. 
those are all pre-coronavirus statistics. Mm. So when you're looking at the world and where we fit in the world and the anxiety of external events, wow, that's yeah. been a major game changer. So now what I'm finding, and statistics are also going to bear this up, right, it's massively increased the levels of anxiety in our society, and that's mm. due to the pandemic. Mm. And it's really sad on one level because the youth are, so the young in our society are really struggling. And just uh, as a, a quick aside, last year we went through a bit of a lull, people were staying at home, so in terms of coming for treatment. Then later on in the pandemic, things were really getting um, bad. People were over it. Certainly our Victorian brothers and sisters were completely over it. Mm. And people were really struggling. Then all of a sudden our inpatient units were full again, um, a lot of referrals, um, and that's that's where we're at now. Mm. What's really troubling at the moment is that I've had friends, colleagues, and family members call me for advice about where their teen should go mm. or help. Right. And, uh, most um, child psychiatrists have closed their books. It's a real it's a real problem. And mm. of course, people are talking about the pandemic tsunami of mental health issues, anxiety being in the forefront of those. So it's hard almost to have a conversation without talking about coronavirus and anxiety because that's what's absolutely, you know, kept us anxious and it's been mm. in the news for the last year. Mm. But before that, I think people, especially young people as well, were getting anxious about inequality in our society. That's a big one that I go on about. Um, and climate change. So we're looking at a world that is burning or flooding or mm. you know not and if we and, and in australia we we our i don't know i don't understand why our politicians have been so slow off the mark it's been internationally embarrassing actually yeah yeah but the mm. young so when we're talking about the young the confluence of all these things our young are really struggling and uh, there have been various uh, um, surveys certainly in the uk there was a big one last year and 94% of the 17 to 25-year-olds who were surveyed had disordered eating, mainly um, overeating, compensating. And most of them, even if they had no anxiety, it was mainly anxiety and depression they were measuring, if they had no anxiety before the pandemic, they were now experiencing anxiety. And the majority of them, if not all of them, this is the sad statistic, felt that the world was never going to be the same again. Wow. Mm. Mm. So, yes, anxiety is absolutely at pandemic levels. Wow. I want to ask you about the corporate environment. Um, perhaps I might just start by saying something here about the corporate environment. I've been sitting with executive teams for years, um, helping them, facilitating, making decisions and doing leadership development work and that kind of thing, team building of various kinds. And I've come to the conclusion that, there is this secret hand that guides many of their conversations, and that is its anxiety. They it prompts them to drive towards tighter timelines, push for more detailed accountability, criticize an idea that's not fully formed, go quiet when there's relational tensions appear, redirect conversations away from potentially awkward ones. These are the maneuvers, the fancy footwork that has that's happening frequently in senior teams or executive teams and 
largely guided by anxiety, but anxiety that's not examined or acknowledged within the group. So it becomes a kind of a ghost in the group, guiding how and where the conversation goes, but never actually held down and talked about. What do you think about that? I mean, that's interesting. There are various things that come to mind, but, you know, acknowledgement is useful and you're talking about mentally healthy workplaces mm. and, and 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 that's one of my passions you know so i just as maybe one way of answering i i, I love giving talks to corp so i go and give talks and and a lot of it's been by zoom in the last year as you know mm. but when i'm in the meeting uh, and we all have systems right so there's a system everyone's really now going, hey, mental health is forefront of our agenda and just linking to what you just said, we realise that a lot of us use maybe not such great coping strategies linked to our own unacknowledged mental health issues. Let's let's have this open discussion and meeting and the organisation is so, so for this. And so before I start, I say hello, and <laughs> now I'm a little bit naughty and what the hell I'm allowed to be. I'm, I'm older. <laughs> yes. So I just want to check, you know, in this wonderful audience, who's the most senior person in the room? And then, <laughs> so the junior, there's always, there's always juniors in any organization. They sit they look around and go, oh, my God, has he just said that? I said, so is the CEO here, you know, the chief executive officer? No? Oh, okay, I'll put my So who's... <laughs> Who's the most senior person here? Because you're really talking about mental health and it's really forefront of what you want to do in your company. And, yeah. and not that I'm saying I'm, you know, uh, attracting the, the big names in your in your company, but who, who is the most senior person here? And then the assistant deputy of HR might put up his or her hand. Yeah. Nervously, and that, that happened at the one banker. <laughs> it was quite funny. One interview published in the Australian Financial Review in January 2019 and it was like it was a female CEO who actually said it took me to become unwell to realize that I was getting irritated by people you know taking time off when they were unwell or seeing someone on the golf course who was off work for mental health issues and wondering why they were there mm-hmm. to realize that actually I needed to play golf when I was recovering and it was quite good for my sense of recovery and recuperation. So it's it's all these uh, interplays and looking at a company. It comes from the ground up. People have to feel that they are listened to and they're part of the solution, but it mm-hmm. has to come from the top down. I think that's yeah, I, I hear you. And <laughs> yeah, and that that was it's such a telling story there around where here we are, we've got this great health, you know, mental health initiative, and so few people from any executive levels are there present on on the webcast with you or the seminar. And that's my experience, is I think it's less acknowledged the higher you go up. Um and I think it's it's become a kind of a constant sense of things. Um, and, and this is how I see it To You know, when I'm with executive teams, mostly when they're looking at their organisation, they just see things as they not as they just see errors. They mostly just see problems. They see errors. They see their disappointments, the incompleteness of things, the failures, 
this filter is there all the time. They're unaware that they have this filter over it. They will continually, well, might frequently, for instance, in my experience, reassure themselves that they're very data-driven, they're very reality-placed. But nevertheless, there is this lens over their conversations that is being driven by anxiety. And it's a bit like watching the Channel 9 News and thinking that's an accurate representation of what happened in our city today. Actually, everything that goes up on the Channel 9 News is highly, highly curated. It's what's going to give us the audience, what's going to be more shocking, what's going to support this or that. And there's a criteria, there's a list at work there. And I think that there may be a criteria or a list at work that's that's formed somehow by the anxious mind that is guiding conversations, but is often not acknowledged. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just I think even in health, we measure things by negative outcomes. So it's critical incidents rather than mm. robustly looking at the positive and what we do in a good way. And that's part of the positive feedback and positive performance review that people don't do well. Plus the interactions that people have, they're not often trained. Managers aren't often trained. Well, I can tell you absolutely not well-trained in interpersonal um, mm. human contact sort of stuff. Mm. But if you're working in a system that is driven, and of course you've got your KPIs and whatever, right? If something's 100%, if you don't reach 100% or a target, then it is unfortunately going to be seen as a failure because that's how you're measuring it. Yeah. Meanwhile, 92% is a damn good result. Mm. And Everyone should be proud of that, and it should go from the top down in a good feedback. But mm. that doesn't happen. Yeah. And so people are constantly anxious, whether conscious or subconscious, about their performance or linked to a KPI and linked to this person right at the top of the food chain looking down on them, uh, who's often, quite frankly, a psychopath or a narcissist because that's how you get to that position. Mm. And that filters down in the makeup of the company and there's this constant drive and I've seen this time and time again in patients of mine who work for big finance institutions there's this constant drive that ob must obviously does play into their anxious response and then how they work that through and it filters down is not one that engenders calm and a good sort of balanced working life. Uh, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It often is a major driver. But what often is the case, because there's this adrenaline and there's this push and, and I mentioned I get quite irritable and angry at times, people just see that, but they don't acknowledge it as an ang anxious response. Yes. Which doesn't help either. Yeah, that, there you have it. I love the way you just said that. That's not acknowledged as an anxious response. Why? Partly because having anxiety is weak. Um, and so for those amongst us who are highly driven, we over sort of leapfrog the anxiety and notice how incredibly driven we are. 
And, um, and yet, and I can remember sitting with one um, client of mine, Mark, who had just been given some feedback through his 360 that when he went and visited all these various outlets throughout the state, the people were just bracing themselves when he would arrive because he would just find fault. And he has dozens of them. He had hundreds and hundreds of people underneath him in his organization. And then I asked him, are you conscious of feeling anxious? He goes, nope. No, I just just got a lot of work to do here. Got a lot of work to do, and uh, and I said, do you know? I think it might be cool if, in our work together, you might actually become aware and perhaps feel something of your anxiety, and then we can talk about how to work with it. And he looked at me, sort of stunned, and he said, "That just sounds like going backwards, Paul." And uh, and I said, well, isn't it possible that a lot of this feedback you've been given is this them noticing behavior, which is a, a, a means to, to minimize or marginalize your own feelings of anxiety? And um, that was the beginning of his work. And he but, did, yeah, did do the work. But, yeah. Mm. Well, that's in, I mean, that's interesting. That's why 360s are so powerful, right? Yeah. If everyone's saying to you, God, you work great, you know, you know, people above or below you at your level, mm. you work great, but actually you make us quite stressed. And yes. hence, yeah. when you enter the room, I mean, wow, you've got to listen to that feedback and you go, wow, is it's not me they're responding to, it's my behavior. And my mm. behavior is reflecting my internal state. Mm. I have to be self-reflective, and that's what we should be all, right, self-reflective. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm having that response or engendering that response in someone, I need to look at what I'm doing. And if Mm. I'm not aware of my own internal emotional state, then I've got to try and be more aware and find it more Mm. because if I'm having that response, that's quite worrying. And yeah. most people will be worried about that unless you're truly a psychopath and um, luckily there are not that many around. Yeah, no, not I, I haven't experienced very many. Um, the people who really don't care about the impact that they're having. Um, most people, like this man that I was working with, was quite shocked and concerned that people were bracing themselves, that in fact, wherever he went, the environment became less safe um, and for others. And I, mean, I don't know if he also, sorry, I mean, you know, when you when you probe a little bit, and that's what I love doing, right, I, I wanted to be an archaeologist and now I'm <laughs> mine, um, you know, that sort of guy, well, he may, if he sits back and looks at his leisure time, and this is what happens in the corporate world a lot as well, especially with men, they go out and drink hard or take mm. drugs or do whatever mm. to wind down, and they don't realise to what extent sometimes Yes. Certainly you realize that, and sometimes when you finally get onto that holiday that people have been pushing you to take and you get the plane ride, this is pre-COVID obviously, (laughs) then you get sick. Your whole body just collapses Mm. because it's been winding up and up and up and you just developed various strategies to deal like that. Mm. Then when you suddenly sit back and go, wow, why can't I just relax? I'm on holiday now and you and you and you're pacing and you're not sleeping well, then it's definitely time to be more self-reflective or at least look at yourself 
with a, a diff, different different lens. Yeah. And it takes a while sometimes for people to acknowledge. And you're right, most people are not dreadful. It's like I have come across them, trust me, and they're not pleasant <laughs> to deal with. And I'm sure you have, yeah. Oh, my God. But anyway, so <laughs> yeah. but at the end of the day, most people aren't. You go, wow, I am pushing people because I want to see the best in them, but they're not picking that up. Mm. I'm pushing people because... I need to push myself and I'm pushing myself because I'm anxious that I'm not going to do my job properly or yeah. get yeah. to the level where I think I should be. Wow. And that really is and can be quite damaging to yourself, those around you and your intimate relationships. And you wonder why your kids or your partner are separating or, or not talking to you or you, but all these excuses why you can't be at, the school play or mm. dinner or whatever. And then you've got to go, wow. Mm. That's and, and yeah, 360 is a very powerful tool. Mm. As, long, as long as there's as long as you can then be helped out of that as well. And my anxiety is played out in different ways in a very angry way. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. Mm. Uh, in a very sharp retort sort of way. And then well, and then you go, okay, foot and mouth disease, and then you overthink things and then you go back and apologize and sometimes make it worse. Um, but actually acknowledging that with somebody is quite powerful. Mm. And and you go, okay, I, I need to step back from what I've just said, but let's look at both of what we're doing well, both look at what we're doing and, and, and move forward as best we can. That can be helpful too. Yeah, thank you for that. Thanks for saying that. And because in, in many ways, that's the context of my own work is people needing to say, well, I might be anxious, but actually I have an obligation to behave in a particular way in this role. So unless I examine that and take a hold of myself, um, I'm actually not fulfilling the who I, the who that I know I really am. The, and and I'm not fulfilling the role as I would desire to fulfill it. So I'd better get a handle on this now. And for and they're most of my clients. I'm sure you have many people who are far more challenged than um, and who have you know multiple comorbidities and so forth. Sorts of things that I don't see. But um, yeah, sure. But I also have a lot of people who you're just describing. So who work and 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 really when they finally do acknowledge. And it can be sometimes out of substance use or, mm. you know, their partner going, if you don't get help, I'm leaving you. And that's, those are valid yeah. reasons to come and seek help, right? Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, the guy is sitting there with his arms crossed and going, okay, this is going to take a little longer to engage <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this person. But actually a lot of it's linked to that. And then when you when you acknowledge that and, and accept and look at what you can change, it's, is a very powerful thing. Oh, it's really the beginning. Beautiful. It's a wonderful beginning to to bring self acceptance and then self responsibility to to be responsible. As Stephen Covey said, response able, able to bring the response that I most want, and um, you know, rather than to be held down by the anxious part of me. But when I have other parts. And that's this is the this is the beginning of our work, and it's a great journey to go on. And but again, it's a journey, and there, there have to be some mm. advantages to getting old. There, there have to be, and part of that is yeah, experience and wisdom and acceptance and working on things. Mm. Otherwise, we just get lost in 
you know, why we can't really go run around like we did when we were 20. And that's, the, you know, there, there are some positives out of it all. Just maybe to end, I, I think it's always useful looking at this as a journey. And it's always useful going to talk to someone. I think it's a, it's a great privilege to be able to talk in a therapeutic way with someone who's not emotionally involved with you. Mm. And especially if you've had the 360 and you go, well, well, hell, what now? If I'm trying to be self-reflective and and want to change, it's that motivation to change, which is a wonderful thing in therapy. Mm. And then you go and engage with someone and talk and and learn more about yourself and how you do things. I think that's useful. And it takes courage to do that. So it's not a weakness. As Cinderella said, I always talk about her when I end these things, have courage and be kind. And that means, you know, be kind to self as well. Yeah. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm Dr. Paul Donovan, but more importantly, I've been interviewing Dr. Mark Cross, the psychiatrist who has a large personal practice has um, actually been interviewed by Richard Feidler, I noticed in your book, and uh, which is a pretty marvellous thing. But more than that, has just helped thousands of patients and now has written a book and brought the life of some of his patients into his books, by the way, protected their identity, of course. But that was a beautiful part of your book. And, um, I don't know. Everyone was their own self. So that oh, was really? the nice thing about no, I said, hey, I'm I'm saying all this stuff about me and, and you know, that I've <laughs> maybe kept it for a long time. If you're going to be in my book, I've got 32 narratives. Five of them are my friends. So they never talked about these things before. And they went, yeah, okay. But they had to be their, their, their proper names. Oh. No one's identified. Everyone's identified. I that, see. That's their real name. Oh, that's just marvelous. Well, that just adds to the the authenticity of it as a piece because you are definitely authentic in it and they are too. So, so thank you for that. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your time in being interviewed for this podcast. Mm-hmm.